0: Well, good morning. It's good to be with you. It's exciting on this uh, really, really hot July day. Aren't you thankful for air conditioning? Yeah. Indeed, uh, I am as well. And speaking of that, you may want to be praying for our final team that has deployed there in Ocean City as we speak, worshiping with one of our partner churches over there preparing to serve international students, children, all kinds of groups. Uh, I was so excited to meet with them yesterday, pray with them, take their pictures, have them be a part of, of sending them out. And I'm so excited to just always be a part of a church that recognizes it's not merely our responsibility to gather, but to scatter as well. And so pray for their efforts this week as they're working in that heat. And I want to talk with you more today about what it means to be a part of that sending entity. We've been in a series called Called to Be Family. What does it look like to actually live as though the local church is your faith family. What's what's that look like? And over the last couple of weeks in particular, we've been drilling down deeply into Acts chapter 2. We want to see what those essential elements were that characterized the first century church. What was it that gave them the power that they have? And so what did they do together? Why must we, as a result, do it together? And then 2,000 years later, why do we still do it together? Today, I I want to answer the question, why? Why is this important? And to answer that question, I want to go to another passage of Scripture. So if you can join me in Ephesians chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, turn with me there. Uh, If you're new to the Christian faith, perhaps don't know exactly where that is, no worries. It's going to be up on the screen here momentarily. But this is a text that I think will help us to understand why we must 2,000 years later do those essential things that the early church did that we see recorded in Acts chapter 2. And I'll be transparent with you this morning by introduction. As a pastor, this tends to be, especially in the early 21st century, one of the more frustrating things. Um, And I'm not blaming you for that. I'm just saying it's just one of those things. Commitment to the local church can be kind of fickle. People often don't know. Many people are kind of non-committal. COVID uh, seems to have made that worse. But I'll be honest with you, I don't think the pandemic created that problem. I think it revealed it. Uh, I think it really, because what happens is when something like that hits, people really start to think deeply about where, where their priorities lie, and if their priority is not in A, B or C, but rather in D and E, then you're going to see more D and E and less A, B, and C in their lives. And so people in my role are now caught between these two extremes. On the one hand, you're trying to hold together an organization that's a lot harder than it used to be to hold together, and that's true now for every church in America but you're simultaneously still trying to pastorally serve the people who are in it. And so a guy in my line of work can do one of two things. We can either get frustrated and grumpy and we can gripe about that, or, or we can seek to understand it. And, and even prior to the last couple of years and all the hardship that our culture has, has borne witness to, I've been able to develop, I think, a little deeper understanding as to why this commitment problem exists. One reason is this, I think, we talk a lot in the church, about a passion for the church. We talk about a commitment to the church, uh, but we've too often, when we use that language, define the church in an almost exclusively organizational way. So it's not your commitment to you and your commitment to you, it's your commitment to this, right? And, and so when you, when you have that view of it, there's a disconnect there because it sounds sometimes, for people sitting out there, like what we're saying is you need to have a commitment to and a passion for your local grocer, a commitment to and a passion for your, your local restaurant, your favorite restaurant, a commitment to and a passion for your local rocks or your local sheets. Y'all been noticing the gas war going on around here? Yeah, there's some real advantages to two companies that really don't like each other and it, and it shows right? So whatever your poison is, whether you pull up to the, the, red, the, the yellow R or the big old red tent out there that's been set up recently in recent months, right? That's oftentimes when we define the church organizationally, it tends to get thrown into those other categories. Well, those other categories are, you know, if, if Rocks offers me cheaper coffee, I'm going to switch teams, right? Because that's just business. That's how it goes, And so if we define church organizationally, tell you that you ought to have a commitment to it, we really shouldn't be surprised when that's the kind of job we've done teaching why the church is actually different from those other entities, that we end up with a lot of church daters, okay? Now, there's nothing wrong with dating, courting, whatever you want to call it, right? There's nothing wrong with being in a relationship with someone, considering marriage with that other person. There's that in-between time where you're kind of feeling each other out, and it— but it, but it's not the same as when you actually become part of the family, is it? When I dated my wife, I was there at Christmas, but it's not the same as for the last 28 years now being there at Christmas. Her family is now my family. My family is now her family. Until the marriage happened, we were dating, and, and there was some welcoming in that, but Can we be honest, any parents in here, you've already kind of felt the weirdness of that? You've got a son or a daughter, and they've brought a significant other home from college or home from wherever, and it's not even that you don't like them. It's like, oh, this person is delightful, but we don't know how to define this because they don't really know how to define it, and so we don't want to make them uncomfortable, but we... Aren't having kind of the level of certainty or whatever. And and so they come and they sit at the table with you and they eat a meal, which is wonderful and you love it, but they don't have a permanent place yet, right, at that dining room table uh, because it's six, one half dozen in the other when the holidays roll around, whether or not they're even going to be there. Any other parents felt like that? You're like, this is kind of weird. Like, do I buy a gift? Do I, you know, Christmas gets weird, Thanksgiving gets weird. that's what a dating relationship, the effect of that has on a, on a larger family. That's not bad, that's not evil, but that's just kind of sociologically, that's kind of how it works. But when you have a church dater, it's that same thing. I'm kind of floating here, and then I go over here for a little bit, and then I go over here for a little bit, and it's not an, it's not an adversarial relationship, but it's just weird. It's weird. It's weird. Because there are characteristics that kind of define people that date the church. Number one, they're they're more me-centered. In other words, the the minute I get uncomfortable, if something I value gets challenged, if someone offends me or hurts my feelings, I'm gone. All right. And and before you go, oh yeah, some people can be so fickle. Let's, Let's do a little introspection here. This may be more true and more pervasive than you think. I want you to ask yourself, what's your favorite thing about this church that with this caveat, is not explicitly commanded in Scripture. Right? If we ever stop preaching the gospel, if we ever say, okay, we're never doing communion ever again, well, well that's an essential. Okay, but, but something that we do, outside of that core of the essentials that we find in the Word of God, there's all kinds of stuff that we do. There's all kinds of structures that give us the capacity for doing it that exist here that aren't explicitly commanded. Ask yourself two questions about that. Number one, what's my favorite part of that? And number two, if it ever went away, would I leave? Have I dug too deep, right? Th- this is what we're looking at. That's a me-centered approach. That, those people, secondly, they're also kind of independent. You know, I can do this on my own. I don't need the church. I don't need other people, right? Well, you've already, you get rough around the edges, you get sharp elbows, and then you jump ship, and then you go, well, I'm fine. Well, you still got the sharp elbows, Who's going to help shave that off? Who's going to confront you with the things that, that lovingly need, you need to be confronted with in order to get where you need to get? And, and the reason that that independence streak is there is because they have, thirdly, a symbiotic kind of view of their church relationship. It, it's not relational. It's more of a, you get me and this and that and that. I'll, I'll provide that, but then I must get this. That's not a relational connection. That's a transactional connection. That's a very different thing. You know, it's interesting, even when I've done marriage counseling over the years, and I don't do a whole lot of it, you, you're going to meet those of you who have been in my office. No, I'm going to get with you about, after about three hours, I've told you everything I know. And I'm, I'm not that bad at helping you understand where you are and where you need to go, but helping you get there. Sometimes that requires one of our godly deacons. Sometimes that requires some mental health professionals that we have in our church family. Sometimes it requires farming that out a little bit. But but when I've done marriage counseling, I'll tell you what i found in almost every single situation where there has been marital discord. At the core of it, the relationship was no longer purely relational. It had become transactional, okay? It doesn't matter what it is, Right? He spends too much money. She won't give me enough sex. Whatever. You drill down deep enough, you know what you're going to find? Well, I'm not getting this, so I'm not giving that. Transactional. And when you treat your church relationship in that way, you get the same kind of result. It's no longer attractive. Something annoying starts bothering you. That creates consumerism. Church then becomes the place where I go to get my religious goods and services. And you know what that's gonna create? The same kind of competition that we see between rocks and sheets, only in the kingdom of God, that's not a good thing. Because what's happening is then, and this is happening all across America, it's been happening for 20 plus years all across America. Churches competing with each other. Alan Hirsch is an Australian missiologist, and he says that in the Western world, and I think he's right, that 80% of churches are after the same 20% of the population being defined as people already in another church, competing with each other, as and not really dissimilar at all from a Lowe's and a Home Depot that build across the street from each other that we've seen in so many towns. Religious goods, and services. I got a pastor friend of mine who talks about a guy who comes to his church. His name is Nathan. He goes to the early service at one church because he likes the music, and then he's got just enough time to grab breakfast before he comes to my friend's church because he likes the preaching better. You know what that's called? Consumerism. And I'm going to tell you something. Nobody grows spiritually like that. They don't. You're not going to get better. You're not going to get closer to Jesus. You're not going to grow in your knowledge of His Word. You know, in not, not in any applicable way anyway so the answer to this is to see the church the way God sees the church meaning among other things understanding there's a place for you a permanent place at the table of every local church and you need to find your place at that table Ephesians is going to give us three reasons for that here and this is this is my favorite, text of all of the texts in God's Word that we're going to study in this series. I love Ephesians 4. So much of it, I think, has been woefully misunderstood, largely because, guys, in my line of work, I'll get to that later. But let me give you three reasons that this text kind of unfolds for us as to why you need to find your place at the table. Ready? Number one, you and I need each other. That's pretty simple, isn't it? Verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. And so the big idea here is is that God gave us each other in the church. In the church, you find all five of these things generally described. And so the church is the package in which is wrapped that collective gift that God wants all of us to have that moves us more toward Jesus. And in the church, one of the primary evidences for this are the complementary gifts that he's given each one of us. Okay. And so this is kind of a, so just kind of little excursies here. In Ephesians 4, you have kind of a general broad description of a gift mix in the body of Christ. This isn't the only place, and it's not the most specific place where we find spiritual gifts. You can go to Romans 12, you can go to 1 Corinthians 12, and you can find other companion texts. And I'll be honest with you, there's a lot of debate among scholarship, has been for hundreds of years about how all of this relates together. But, but Ephesians 4 kind of carries the big idea here. And the biggest misunderstanding is to people who come to this text and they assume that these are descriptive of offices that are held by all the leaders. Now, what that's going to lead you to understand is that God gave leaders to the church to equip the church. Well, that's true. He did give leaders to the church to equip the church. But actually what he did is he gave the church itself. He gave us each other. This is not a text merely about those of us who hold offices or who are in leadership. This is a text describing the whole body, and the functions that all of us have to perform in sync and together, in order to forward the mission of the church. So, the, and the, so the truth is, this isn't just about leaders. There's not a person in this room right now. If you're a follower of Jesus, filled with the Spirit, there's not one of you who doesn't bear at least one of these functional gifts. So let, let me kind of describe these for you in brief. Starting with apostle, and this is I, I use the term little case a, small lowercase a, small a, apostle. Okay? There was, at one point in history, a capital A apostle. That was an office. Those were the guys who wrote the Bible, just being a little bit oversimplified here, but basically that's what they did. It, it was the foundation of our faith laid upon them. All of that's true. And, uh, but I think it's necessary to make that distinction that, that Paul isn't talking about the capital A office of apostle. If for no other reason then, and you don't have to agree with me on this, but you're looking at a guy that doesn't think that office exists anymore. Okay. So it's one thing to say there was an office in the past that laid the foundation for what you and I now have in the Scriptures containing the apostolic teaching, but there is a gift mix that is apostolic at its very inherent nature that's being described here. And here's the thing about apostles. Apostles like to do things new. Now what do I mean by that? Apostles are creators. Almost every person we've ever sent out that has successfully planted a church from covenant has had an apostolic gift. They're the creators of effective systems, the architects of new approaches, church planters, entrepreneurs. These are the leaders of a future that does not yet exist. And we need them in the church. If this is you, we need you in the church. Sometimes churches get scared of these people. And and not just because they're afraid of that term apostle. It's because the Western church in particular, we've had it so good for so long. We've got money. We've got structure. We've got establishments. We've got systems. And we like to work within our systems. And the issue is apostles don't submit the systems. They create them. And it scares some of the more conservative of us in the body because we, we fear that change. But in actuality, empowered by the Holy Spirit, apostolic leaders will bring necessary change into the body with every new age, okay? And so they create systems. They're needed because the church is not a system, not at heart. It's not not at heart a system. The church is a family that has to constantly reinvent the way it does things so as to advance the kingdom. Some of you are functional apostles. You have that gift. God has put it within you. And, and your job and ours together is to discover where you belong and where that newness needs to be presented in the body of Christ the covenant. secondly is the prophet now the prophet prophetic people are bold individuals you see them all over the place now there there are people that like me that have prophetic gift, but also hold an office where we get to use that regularly, but there are people right in front of me, people watching me right now. God has given you the prophetic gift. How do I know that? Because he's wired you, hardwired you as a, as a black and white person in the church. These, these people don't appreciate nuance or ambiguity. And that's why, by the way, if you're a prophet, you need the rest of your church family. Because although, as a friend of mine said, our theology should be black and white, we live in a world that is on the full color spectrum. And there is a lot of nuance, and there is some uncertainty. Prophets don't typically navigate that well, but I'll tell you what prophets do well is they call the church back to an understanding that although although we may not always be able to access it with absolute accuracy, there is a clear transcendent standard. There is unchanging truth, and the church must stay anchored to that truth. Some of you, that describes you. You believe that with all of your heart. And you have a prophetic gift for communicating this. Thirdly are evangelists. And so if apostles do things new, all kind of new stuff, and where are we going to do new ground? And like the apostle Paul, I'm going to go where Christ is not yet named. I'm going to churn up ground that has not yet been trodden on. And and prophets do things true. We want black, we want white. We want to remind people of that transcendent truth. Evangelists, they want to do it now. Why is that? Well, the reason is because In the evangelist view, hell is hot, and there are a lot of people going there, and you and I have to do our part now. Now, sometimes if you're an evangelist, you can get a little too eager, and you can forget that evangelism isn't the only thing that we do here. It's not the only thing a church does here. But without an evangelist, there's no passion for lost people. There's no sense of any kind of effort outside of the fellowship of faith, which means there's no urgency. There's no constant reminder that there is a heaven, that there is a hell, that there is a hope found in a bloody cross and an empty tomb that anybody in the world can avail themselves of. Evangelists help us keep that sense of urgency. Some of you are evangelists. You love people who are far from God. You love people who are not yet followers of Jesus. Then, shepherds. Now, this one gets confusing because the language here is actually the same word that we find elsewhere, for example, in the pastoral epistles for the word pastor. And so that makes people nervous. They don't, you know, who should we actually give this role to? Well, if you go over to 1 Peter 5, you'll see this word coupled with another word, overseer, another word, elder. And when they're all used together, they do in fact describe an office. And we're going to talk about the pastoral office in in the coming weeks. I believe God's calling some men out of here to become shepherds of God's people, and I actually hold that that office. But but Paul here is simply referring to a function that could belong to anybody. Caring for another soul is not exclusively the responsibility of a pastor, someone who holds a pastoral office. And so when Paul speaks of shepherding here, apostles do things new, Prophets do things true, evangelists do things now. Shepherds, they want to do everything together. If you're a shepherd, your biggest concern often is the unity of the body, and that's incredible. Some of our best pastoral shepherds are our deacons here, because they love God's people, and they they fill those gaps. And they have those hard conversations because they want to promote the, the unity of the body. And it's you who are instrumental in holding us together. And it's sometimes why prophets and shepherds don't always understand each other. Can you already see where some tension might happen? You have somebody who comes along, there's black and there's white. And the shepherd says, yes, but people matter. And the truth of the matter is that they're both true, aren't they? They're both true. And so the role of the church is to to strike that balance of grace and truth, of, of love and truth. We need each other in order to do that. There's not a single one of us that only with our gifts can do that on our own. Here's the other side of that. If you can push through that tension and work well together, prophets and shepherds make a powerful team. Finally, there's teachers, and the teachers, they like to do things right. These are your quality control people. They call the rest of us to recognize, and they're right about this, that the kingdom of God is worthy of doing it right. It's worthy of our attention. It's worthy of our being conscious of just even the smallest things. Now, sometimes teachers can be hypercritical. They can see everything wrong and nothing right. And that's why you, if you have that kind of gift, you, you need the rest of the body. To get there. But if you're governed by the Holy Spirit, you will help the rest of this body raise the bar to a level that is actually worthy of the name of Jesus. Now, there's a lot more I could say about that, but just in summary apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, teacher, everybody in this room falls into one of those categories. And sometimes when you encounter and try to work with people in those other categories, they might rub you the wrong way because you don't appreciate that you need each other. Okay, And it's okay to admit that. It's not all going to be hunky-dory. Sometimes we're going to rub each other the wrong way. Sometimes it's because there's sin. Sometimes it's because we, we have a particular gift mix and we don't understand the gift mix of the other. And so there's some self-awareness required. There's some awareness of the other person that's required so that we can do this as a body. That is God's good intention for us. And it's nothing new for any of us who are married, is it? This coming Saturday, that woman will have tolerated me for 28 years. Yes, she deserves that. And now I don't know if she's mad because I humiliated her. I don't know. All right. So 28 years, love her more than my own life. You know, there are things after 28 years that we still have trouble doing together. Don't look at me like I'm the only one. There are some things that we just, right? Two things I can think of in particular. We don't grocery shop together. Amen. That's right. And and we don't do home improvement projects together. It's got to be one of us or the other. It's got to. Now, it's not because I'm right and she's wrong, although I am and she is. And I'm kidding. It's. Oh, I'm going to pay for that one. Okay, it's not because of that. It's, we, we come at it with a couple of different visions for, we, we, let me put it this way. We come at it with different value systems, right? There's a value that I have that's not necessarily wrong, but Mrs. Rainey comes along and says, that shouldn't be the number one value. Like, for example, if we were to say, all right, let's, let's bite the bullet for our 28th anniversary baby and go to food line and see if we can get this worked out finally, right? <laughs> Here's what Joel wants to do. From the moment we enter the store, give me the list, I'll tear it in half, I'll give you half, I'll take half, you go to aisle one, I'll go to aisle 16, I'll meet you in aisle eight, we'll do it double in half the time. Makes sense? Who, who, who thinks that makes perfect sense? Come on, get them hands up, I need some support here. All right, All right. how many of you think, oh, that's not the way I want to do it? bunch of reprobates. See, this is the problem, right? She doesn't want to do it that way. She wants to go up and down. 28 years, I do not understand that at all, right? But but what what has it taught me? Patience, forbearance. You know what else has taught me? She saves money. Like when she comes back from the store, even in this age of inflation where we're spending more than we ever thought we would in our lives to feed ourselves and our children she saves money and and when I go because I'm all erratic and everything again I still think it's more efficient you get it done quicker but but here's the here's the drawback to that that I've learned and especially if I take one of the kids with me hey dad can we have this sure yeah hey dad can we have that oh yeah yeah take it and then and then we go broke right? And so there's a balance here, right? We have to learn how to do that together. It's not that one of us is right and the other is wrong. It's that we're coming at this with two different value sets. You need to think about that with regard to your church family, because when you're at your worst in a relationship with someone else in this body, it's because you don't understand each other or that you need each other, all right? So profit— When you think the shepherd is being too wishy-washy, it might just be because you don't understand the shepherd. Apostle, when you think the prophet is being too hard-nosed and they need to cut up new ground, you you might just need to understand they're, they're coming at this and their number one value might be a little higher. The thing they look at most might be a little higher. Teacher, when you start thinking that the shepherd is sloppy and not doing it right there's a better way. There's a way. It might just be that you need to slow your roll because maybe that quality control, as much as it needs to go up, it might not go up as rapidly as you'd like in the time frame that you'd like. And the reason is because the overall picture, We we need each other. God is calling us in this text as a singular body to appreciate the complementarity that exists right here. And sometimes when we don't, Quite get along with it. Well, we'll just keep these people safe. E- even, even at my level, the easiest thing in the world to do is go, oh, okay, well, these people just don't need to play with each other. We'll put this one over here. We'll put that one over there. Now, I don't think that's God's vision, though. I don't think, because I think if we can push through some of those differences, here's what we'll find God has called us to a task that is impossible for any of us without the rest of us. The converse of that is this, and it is glorious news. Everything God requires for us to do the job of mission, he has given it to us, and he's given it to us in each other, right? That's the message here. He gave all of these things to us. We need each other. Secondly, your spiritual growth and mine depends on this. You're never going to grow up spiritually, neither will I, if we don't register with this if we don't start to plug this in look at verse 13 until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the son of god to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning by craftiness and deceitful schemes the implication is pretty clear if you want to grow you need the body And if you don't have each other, if we don't have each other, we will never reach maturity and we will remain children. Now, it's interesting. Greek is a very precise language. So this is not talking about an eight-year-old learning to ride a bike. This is not talking about a prepubescent 12-year-old who's just starting to notice the opposite sex. This is talking about an infant still pooping his pants. Specifically, that's what it's talking about. A baby. A baby. And and so it's a a reference to natural infancy, and the declaration is that none of us should stay there. Some people sit in a church that they never take full participation in their entire lives And they never grow toward Jesus. They never let go of their sin. They never let go of their baggage. They got the same stuff going on in their life now that they had 25 and 30 years ago because they're so tone deaf and they won't get into community because they're scared to death at heart. Somebody's going to expose that. And if it's a loving community, they will because they love you. I remember a young man, very first church I ever planted, we would have a small group together and then we would split up the guys and the girls and we would go off and we would do what's just called confession time just and we wanted that open kind of we wanted people if somebody if somebody was like I'm same-sex attracted we wanted them to have the freedom to say that I we want that here people need to be able to be honest about where they are and this guy finally felt it and it was great I'm I'm struggling with porn I need your prayers okay and then week two and then week three And then week four, and then week five, and then month six, and then year two. And then it it was the same thing every week, and it's getting kind of awkward because we're like, what do we do? Like, we want to have patience. We want to be loving, but we hadn't said anything yet. And finally, one of our elders who was in his 70s, a pediatrician, probably a pretty good match there, he said, boy, come here. This kid's like 20, 21 years old. And he just took him out on the porch. And I don't know what he said, because the wall muffled it. But there was volume in that conversation. And when they came back in, this gentleman told me, we discussed the difference between confession and repentance. You confess all you want. Confession's not a bad thing, it's a good thing. But don't be coming in here telling us you repented every week when you go right back to that nonsense you stop doing it. Wait a minute, doesn't porn rewire your brain? Isn't it more complicated than that? Yeah, it's more complicated than that, but it starts with a young man with the will saying, I hate this, and I love Jesus more, and in the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to whip it, no matter what it takes. That's repentance, and a healthy community will call you to that. It'll call you. You got a problem with Rage. We're handing out car decals today. As you go out the door, car decals. We tried to hand them out like four years ago, the number of people. And on the one hand, I was like, well, okay, well, they're honest. So that's good. They're admitting where they are. On the other hand, I'm like, I can't believe it because a lot of them were older than me. And they're like, well, no, I got too much of an issue with road rage. I don't want to ruin Covenant's name. And we're like, okay, well, all right, don't take one now. Maybe set a goal that you can take one a year from now. I'm just throwing that out there. Well, I say I'm sorry, so? God wants repentance. Stop doing it. And don't tell me you can't, because the Holy Ghost lives within you, and he can. And he will bring you to be able to do that. You see, but you can't do any of that if you don't have community. You're going to remain a baby. You're going to keep with the road rage. You're going to keep ad- stay addicted to porn. You're going to keep m- treating your family in a way that you shouldn't. You're going to keep doing all these things. And it's okay to poop your pants when you're six months old. Perfectly acceptable. By the time you're six years old, you shouldn't be doing that anymore. This is Paul's call. And explicitly and implicitly, he says, you need a faith family in order to get there. Otherwise, you're going to be carried about by every wind of doctrine. That's a picture of somebody unable to protect themselves. You think about an eight, nine-year-old kid who hasn't been trained to tell you what his address is or what his parents' phone number is or what street he's on or how to get home. You just throw him out in the middle of Manhattan. and You just leave him to himself, and he's open to pray, and he's open and exposed and unable to protect himself, and he's going to be blown about by something. Something or someone is going to take that kid for good or for ill. That's what Paul says our spiritual end will be without the church. And the most obvious example of this is somebody that just follows the culture. They make their decisions. They determine the man. You're here every single week, but you just, you're not into the Word. You're not into anything at all that would lead you to think, well, wait a minute. Maybe this is one of those situations where I need to be countercultural. You determine your value, you live your life in very uncritical and unthinking manner. But it can also happen inside the Christian bubble. Evangelical Christianity in the West is an enterprise. It is, you, you might rightly call it the evangelical industrial complex. So you can never darken the doors of a church but claim to be a Christian and put crosses on your t-shirt and wear crosses around your neck and be a part of this Christian culture, which means you blow from fresh new movement to fresh new movement to fresh new movement. You're at every Christian concert and every Christian event, and you only watch Christian television, and you're involved in anything and everything Christian except the church. You're going to poop your pants until you see Jesus. That's, That's the result. That's the result. Don't mistake flash for spiritual. That goes back to what I warned you about last week, that every Christian experience is supposed to lift you to high heaven, and you're supposed to get huh, I need encouragement. Oh, well, of course you need encouragement. Of course I need encouragement. And then sometimes I need a good kick in my backside. We all need those things because God wants us to grow. Everybody needs to grow. And I'm no, I'm no exception to that. I've been here, I'll start my eighth year here in just a few months. I've had staff who report to me, correct my mistakes. I've had elders who hold me accountable, help bring guidance to my leadership. I've had volunteer leadership, especially our finance committee in my first two years, tell me to calm down I, or to be patient. Or to rethink a position. You, you know why? Because I am not yet what I need to be. I'm growing too. And just like you, I cannot get better. I cannot get more like Christ without his bride. I can't do it. And that was true for us even prior to coming to you. I was not a pastor before I came here. Not functionally anyway. For 11 and a half years, uh, I worked for basically a nonprofit. And we were part of a regular contributing, we were serving a willing part of the family of God at a church in Glenwood, Maryland that we still to this day love. We love the people there. Our children spent their formative elementary years there. And we committed ourselves to that faith family during that that same time period. And I'll tell you even later in this message about some really difficult times that we went through there. But one of the most important was this our spiritual maturity and growth depended on our participation in that community i could not have grown even to the place i am now without those people and you can't either you need each other we need each other our spiritual growth depends on this and the ultimate reason verse 15 and 16 tell us is because our calling is bigger than us all right it's not just personal i have this even at the seminary when i go to teach Especially at the undergrad level, some I mean, there ain't nobody more dangerous than a Bible college freshman. I'm just saying, and, and so you, you'll you'll be talking about. Um ordination for example he's like okay a a church needs to you, you need to sense a call from God you need to demonstrate to a body of believers that you have the gifts commensurate with that calling you need that church to confirm that call no the church does not call people God does but the church is the recognizing agency of that call And early in my ministry, some of the Bozo the Clown ordination councils I sat in where they would ask a question like, well, what would you do if this council decided not to ordain you today? And and the, the, the guy in the front would just go, well, I'd preach anyway. And everybody in the room was like, amen. And I'm like, well, then why are we here? The church is the accrediting agency for this. This is the way God set this up. And I've had students go, well, that's just not right. Is God called me to this. Yeah, prove it. Prove it. Well, listen, no, that, a, a y'all, it is a personal thing. It's not a private thing. That's a very different matter. I said, and I'll prove it to you. Go out and try to convince a congregation of people that God has called you to pastor them. And if they do not, by vote or by whatever their processes involve, call you to be their pastor it means you've not been able to convince them to be your pastor and if you can't convince them that god's called you to pastor you guess what you're not going to do you're not going to pastor this is god has called all of us pastors included maybe pastors especially to this kind of thing our calling is bigger than us god doesn't call anybody in here to build their own platform you preach the cross, you preach the resurrection, you serve the body of Christ, you love your neighbor, then you die, then you're forgotten. That's what Zizendorf taught the Moravians. Worked out pretty good for them. Their churches are still dotted all over the Eastern Caribbean. It's bigger than us. Paul says this too, verse 15 Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is a construction metaphor designed to communicate to us in a highly visual way what God intends to do in and through the body that's gathered right here. So think about it. Any married couples ever built a house together and and you're still married? Got a little bit of that going on? When you build a house, you need several things, don't you? You need several teams most of the time of individuals working together and in the right order. They've just built like 10 or 12 new homes in my subdivision. And it's Shepherdstown. So, you know, once you go down beyond six inches, there ain't nothing but granite. So all I heard for three months was bang, 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 bang. You know, why? Because the first thing you got to do is you got to move some earth because you can't build a solid foundation on undulated grounds. You can't do that. And so you got to you got to dig that foundation. You got to have a level ground and then so there's going to be some earth moving involved. Then there's got to be somebody to pour come behind pour foundation. Then you got to frame it, then you got to roof it. Then you got to wire it, then you got to plumb it, then you insulate it and you drywall it in that order. Am I right, construction guys? You really shouldn't do it out of that order because if the electrician shows up before the roofer does and then it rains, we got a problem, right? There's an order, there's a sequence, there's a way in which these various teams cooperate to build that house. That's the analogy Paul gives here. And so the end game is every part of the body grows individually as the body grows together and is constructed. That happens by our being held together, by our common faith, which grows individually and collectively more toward Jesus every day. And then the basis for all of this is speaking the truth in love. We do this with each other, and we do it for the good of the other person because we love each other. Jesus told us in John 13, 35, this was one of the distinguishing marks of his disciples. He says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And we admittedly don't always get this right. In fact, multiple times in history, the church has failed spectacularly to live out this example. It doesn't mean we're illegitimate. It just means we're imperfect. And the reason that every single time it happens is a failure to live up to this phrase, speaking the truth in love. That's hard, isn't it? Even in your own family, that's hard. I mean, there are people that I could have an argument with that I'll never see again, right? Insurance agents on the phone, car warranty salesman. He went, I don't care about those. Now, I'm not saying I don't care about them or that they don't have souls or that they're not important. I'm just going, I, I will just, I got things to do, click, right? But if I get in a fight with my wife, it hurts. Right? It's always, that's always the case. People are like, well, I don't want to feel pain. Then never have a significant relationship. Ever. Because it's going to come with pain. God is calling you to have a significant relationship with the body of Christ here. You know what's going to come with? Some pain. Pain. I'm not saying there aren't limits to it. I'm not saying, you know, we've talked about in the, the anti-abuse culture that we've tried to, to implement all across this campus. I'm not saying they're not limits. I'm not saying there aren't toxic environments. I'm saying, generally speaking, when God calls us into community as the body of Christ, he's calling us to endure one another. Which means this speaking the truth in love is going to be messy. Sometimes it's going to be inconsistent. Sometimes it's going to be not the fairest thing because we won't get it right. Sometimes it's going to be confusing. Because if you appropriately balance these in a community of faith, it means that some things aren't going to resolve easily. The tension that you feel with another person isn't always going to resolve easily. If your aim is to just resolve the tension, you lose because the tension is what makes you grow that's like going to, to the gym and the free weights and a guy my size going well I'll just start with a bar which weighs 45 pounds so I could just chuck it and catch it and chuck it and catch it like all day long no no you need to put a couple hundred pounds on there just to start right so what's your capacity? How are you growing? That's the tension that I'm talking about. If your aim in the church body is just to take the weights off and never feel anything, God's not, that's not what God's called us to. You lose when you just relieve the tension because you end up with one extreme or the other, either all truth, which isn't really truth, it's just a bunch of hard-nosed legalists pushing their own opinion, or love, which really isn't love, it's just affirmation of whatever seems to make everybody happy at the moment. Speak the truth in love. This is is what Paul is saying. Church life is hard. God meant church life to be hard, but it's worth it because it's that larger calling to constantly live in unresolved tension, like building a house. If you do that, there's going to be tension. Tension. Apostles are going to be in tension with teachers. Prophets are going to be in tension with shepherds. Shepherds are going to hold some things in tension with evangelists. But if you push through with commitment toward each other, the end result is a spiritual house that lasts forever. And I know when I say things like this that are challenging that it sometimes falls on the ears of people who've been through some horrible things that I haven't been through. You've been in an abusive environment in a church. You've been in a toxic environment in a church. And that bad experience, or maybe it wasn't, it didn't even involve you, but you just watched a place just get torn apart by satanic division, and you were one of the casualties, and you're thinking, I'm not going to chance this again. I think I'm doing just fine on my own. Any talk of commitment makes you want to run, I get it. I get it. Like I said, we had an 11-and-a-half-year commitment with a singular church when we lived in Central Maryland. What I haven't told you yet is that in 2010, some things began to happen, some division that turned to toxicity. A pastor was terminated. A church was divided. People that loved each other and sat around tables with each other all of a sudden were turned against each other. The word satanic got used a whole lot more than it should have toward other people that just weeks earlier had been sitting side by side in the same place. And coupled with that is Amy and I were going through a bit of a a rough patch ourselves we've been married about 14 years at the time we weren't on the verge of divorce or anything like that we were just having some issues pushing through some things and we we recognized the two of us that if we were going to get through it we were probably going to need someone wiser to help us along the way and so we were seeing a counselor at that point and i won't ever forget the day that we were describing to her the things that were going on in our life outside the relationship that she and i were trying to struggle through and when we got to our church life and we we describe what was going on. She just looked at us and she said, that doesn't sound like the kind of environment that's going to help you at this point. You probably need to go somewhere else. And we seriously considered it because this wasn't some woman who was loosey-goosey and just trite. And it was just, she, she had a lot of wisdom. She helped us tremendously in so many other areas of our life. And so we, we spent a lot of time in prayer about it. Here's the conclusion we came to. I looked at my wife one day and I said, what are we teaching our children when we just jump ship? What are we teaching them about the level of commitment they need to have to the kingdom and to the church, which is, in this age, the physical manifestation of this kingdom? What example are we setting? And what good are we really doing for our own spiritual growth? And so our decision in that moment we lowered our heads, and together we made the determination we will love and we will stay. And you know what? We came through it. Like I said earlier, we love those people. We love that body. We still have fond memories of the way our children were raised, the the discipleship lessons they've learned, the things they will carry with them for the rest of their lives because we stayed in a singular family. They had the same Sunday school teacher. They had the same people influencing them and doing it for good. And even in those very difficult times, they saw not just bad examples of toxicity, they saw good examples of godliness. And the last Sunday we were there before I came here, my 16-year-old son, who at this moment is in Ocean City with our youth ministry, he'll be sharing Jesus this week with lifeguards and little kids in VBS, and students who live all over the world. I baptized my boy on that last Sunday there before we left. So from experience, I'm not just speaking from an ivory tower here. The local church is worth it. It is worth it, but none of us can do it alone. God never intended for us to do it alone. You need a family. And the way you enter a family is to find your place at the table. And you can do that. You can do that right now. You can go to covenantexperience.com and click either let's connect, and then I would like to serve, or or the get involved button. And you can find all kinds of ways to get involved, or if you just want to reach out personally to somebody and go, hey, I, I want to jump into this. We will respond to you this coming week enter into a covenant relationship, because I'm going to tell you, it will change your life. Your life will change our life, and all of us together will change the world. This is God's way to get it done, and I invite you to it with all of my heart today. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the church. Thank you that you didn't leave us. Lord, we know that, that you are enough, but Father, part of what you provide for us is this gift of, of the rest of the body, And so, Lord, would you give us a vision for what you want us to be? Give every individual in this room a sense and a definition of how you want them to contribute. And, Father, may we all want to be a part of something bigger than ourselves, a kingdom that's bigger, a mission that is greater. And, Lord, may we be faithful to it. And for those who don't know you today, Father, would you draw them to your death and resurrection that we commemorated in the body and the blood just a few moments ago, would you draw them? Would you give us an opportunity to share with them what it means to follow you and may they begin that journey today. I pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Hi everybody, Pastor Joel here and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God, and if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here. I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.